0: Today, a few more things I wish I had learned about ministry before I finally did.
1: Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place.
0: Hey, a 60th birthday only comes every once in a while, so uh, the last conversation... Choosing some random, oh yeah, once. That's fair enough. Uh, Daisy was pointing out, producer, was pointing out they only come once. So for a person. Anyway, the point is uh, so I extended my random collection of thoughts about things I've learned, uh, this time in ministry, talking about ministry specifically uh, into, uh, you know, a couple of episodes. So today we'll, we'll kind of conclude these thoughts and I wish it were systematized, but it's not, it's a birthday thing. So if it weren't birthday, I would have worked on it harder, uh, in terms of organizing it and choosing things. But all of these things really do stand out to me as something, uh, that I wish I had learned uh, when I was younger, but eventually, you know, being 60, you run into these things eventually. Um, I, you know, I finally, I think, have come to understand them, even if, even if it's still a challenge always to apply them uh, in the things I do. So we've talked about several things, uh, ministry, leadership, when not to laugh is when we started. That's where we'll end today also. I said we would get back to it. We will. Uh, that'll be the point we get to at the end. When not to laugh. That was a lesson I learned very, this, and this lesson, unfortunately, I learned even later than the other one, not too late. I mean, I started learning it. Uh, but we'll come back to it. We also talked about ministry leadership, the relationship between Scripture and ministry, but then the next one, the one I want to bring up now, is about the relationship between people and ministry, uh, and I, I mean, this, this one, it's so obvious. I mean, it's just, you know, out there, out front, in everything everyone says all the time. Things are about people. People are the only thing that matters, all those words, uh, it, it reminds me a lot of ways of when I, you know, because I'm in higher education, the president of Crystal College, for people who don't listen to the other sh- episodes, uh, I'm in a higher education, been in it for a long time, and I've been in ministry for a long time, decades in both and uh, it's really funny to me when people will say, "Well, you know what I didn't never learned in school was how to do a baptism." You know, nobody taught me how to balance a budget. Nobody told me how to manage a business meeting. And you know, that's all nonsense because there there have been courses for, you know, as long as there have been seminaries in how to do church administration, how to resolve conflict, how to do the practical aspects of ministry. We practiced baptism, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. That that's. But here's what happens, and, I, and I've and started saying this to people. I used to just nod and say, oh, that's a good idea. We, we should teach something practical in a school about ministry. Gee, who, who ever thought of that before? Anyway, I, you know, rather than being snarky about it, I usually just sit silently. Now I don't, I'm not snarky or silent. I just respond and say what is true about it, which is you know, the, the issue isn't really that no one was teaching a course on church administration in practical terms when you were in seminary, but that until you've actually been in a position where you need it, you're not inclined to listen to stuff like that. You're not inclined to learn it. And it's that way with a lot of these things that I'm talking about. The statement, the ministry is about people, was probably said to me 500 times by the time I was actually pastoring a congregation at the age of 24. But, you know, it doesn't mean anything to you, to you until you've been in it for a while and until the priorities have come to clash a few times and you finally realize this thing's about people. Why didn't anybody ever tell me this? You know, and so on. And so people, learning this, that people are the ministry. They're not just objects of ministry. How many of these things can I get into the room so I can speak to them? Uh, they're not just objects of ministry so that we can get things from them, so that we can do other ministry, to get more people in there so we can do more things. It's not that. They're also not barriers to ministry. Uh, and that's, that one is particularly tricky, but I'll come back to it in a second to illustrate what I mean there, and I, I think you know what I mean. But, you know, well, a, a few years back uh, at our school at Criswell, we did a diversity training probably probably eight or nine years ago. It was right after I became president, I believe. We did a diversity training, and I know people get uncomfortable with that. Oh, what kind of weird exercises are you going to do? Well, we had a, a a person to lead it who is one of our professors, and he speaks Hebrew and Arabic, and he had lived in Israel and served on both sides of the, of the border between the the Hebrew Israelis, and the Arabic Israelis. Uh, He lived back and forth between the two, and he served in all those areas. So he had a lot of experience in different cultures. And so we did this diversity training because we found that a lot of the uh, troubles that we had serving students well came in the form of the students who were from other cultures. And so we just thought, well, let's do it. I mean, we we don't do trainings like this, so let's do a training so that we're more... Uh, open to understanding how to relate to somebody who comes from a different cultural background. And so he did it on, uh, uh, he focused on one aspect of cultural divergence, which is uh, about this difference between cultures that prioritize time, like ours, and cultures that prioritize relationships, like a lot of Middle Eastern cultures and a lot of other cultures, too. And it is different. I mean, and there are individuals in each culture who still favor one over the other. So it's not like it's monolithic, but you can tell the difference in the cultures, in the way people think about times. So here's when, and, and if you think of all the American games, with the exception of one, baseball, which is particularly uh, favored for the fact that it's an exception, uh, all they're all, you know, I mean, think about football or basketball. The last five seconds take... You know an hour because everybody's calling time out 4.29 seconds left change that to 4.25 seconds and how long is it going to and so on everything seems to be based on how quickly not not just quickly but on measuring the time between things so the football game is going to end at this time that's how it's going to happen and we're going to watch the clock run out at the end of the game and so on we're very busy about time so when we say something's going to start at 10 o'clock If you're there at 9:45, you're late. You know that's the lingo that a lot of people use. You know, if you're on time, you're late, and uh, if you're uh, if you're early, you're just on time. That kind of language, which was which was my dad's way of thinking about things. He didn't use uh, aphorisms like that or glib phrases like that. But uh, that was his way of thinking about things. That's that's how we are. Those of us who are time based. There are other cultures where that's just not the case. Hey, we're going to start at five o'clock, and by five fifty-five. Uh, everybody's starting to gather, and 5.59, you might say, hey, we're going to get going in about five or ten minutes. It happened to me the other day. I was, do, I was at an event to celebrate someone's long-term ministry and international ministry in the area, in the DFW area, and, uh, and I went and I sat, and I was concerned because I was about five minutes late. I was concerned I blew into the parking lot and jumped out of the vehicle and walked inside and there was hardly anybody there. And it's like, I'm I'm five minutes late. What's going on? And people kept on coming in, kept on coming in. And I'm not exaggerating. About an hour later, we got an announcement from somebody up front. Hey, I think we're going to probably get going here in about five or ten minutes. Appreciate everybody uh, being here and so on. And then we got started and had the event. And it's because they, they're in a culture that's not time-based. It was about gathering and visiting and, you know, and it started around five o'clock, if you mean by five o'clock, sometime after five o'clock. And that was all fine for them. That's what they were thinking. That difference, you know, is, is not just a personality trait. It's a way of seeing the world. And it's also a recognition of where your priorities are. And when, so like for me and my son, my oldest son. Uh, I I sound like David, my son, my oldest son, Philip. Uh, Anyway, between me and my son, the difference is profound. I am very time-based. You know, it's time. Hey, I appreciate the conversation. You've already said that four times. Get over it. Let's move on. You know, I already know what you're going to say. When somebody walks in and asks me something, hey, can I do this? And I say yes. And then they start explaining to me why they want to do it. I'm like, why are you saying anything? I already said, yes, I'm done. It's just, that's a waste of time. I've got a meeting to get to. I've got a paper to write. I've got a document to do, you know, whatever. My son, Philip, is the most relational person I probably know on the planet. Uh, I He will say, hey, we got to go when he's getting started with a conversation. And i I assume just wants to make sure everybody understands how important the conversation is now, because eventually somebody's going to have to leave somewhere, but it's probably not going to be him because he's going to keep talking to whoever's there because he loves people and he loves being around people. It's one of the things I've come to appreciate about him most. He has never ever changed his desire to focus on the person in front of him and to strengthen a relationship with a person. He's always that way. And I admire that. But again, I'm like, be on time, you know, what on earth? So the priorities can be different. I have learned over time to really value whatever it takes to prioritize people. That's because that's where all of this ultimately has to go. Uh, and I learned it in ministry in terms of, you know, we had a a long time ago, we had a, an award called a Setters Award. There may still be one. Uh, I'm, I'm not as active. Obviously, I haven't pastored in 20 years. So I don't know if they still do this or not, but it was about churches, baptisms, and how uh, you know how many people you baptized in relation to the size of your congregation. And so a setter Church was a church that baptized more than a certain number per person that was in your congregation, a certain percentage of your membership or something. We received, we received the award several years in a, wo- in a row. But, but here's the thing. I, I did that and then learned over time that, you know, it it wasn't about whether we could get another 50 people in the water the next year or make sure we had someone to baptize every week, which were priorities I had learned from early in my ministry. It wasn't about that as much as whether the people that were coming to the church were growing or not, were actually committed to following Christ and were following him better from week to week and so on. And so years later... I learned that, and I didn't know this until then, I learned that a lot of times a baptism rate, meaning the number of people you're baptizing in your congregation over a given period of time, is more reflective of the pastor's commitment to evangelism and his own personal ability to get people into that, uh, you know, to lead people to Christ and then bring them to baptism and his efficiency in accomplishing all of that than it is really about everybody else in the church. And that's not the point. The point is for the congregation to be people who are obeying Christ and following Christ and leading others to Christ as well. Uh, And and in the same exact way, whether it's about evangelism or doing other kinds of ministry, it was years later that I learned that it wasn't, it was never the real ministry I was doing as a pastor. Every Christian does ministry. But as a pastor leading the congregation, the only real ministry I was doing was not in, for instance, finding out someone was in the hospital and going up to the hospital and visiting them. Any Christian can do that and ought to. The real ministry was me using a hospital visit as an invitation for others to do ministry with me, learning, seeing the example, and so on, or just inviting them to go and take responsibility for other people in the congregation and so on. It took me forever to learn that I wasn't just going, even uh, on the first layer, even just to meet a person's need, but that I was to be equipping other people. They were my ministry for equipping them. It's the Ephesians 4 thing, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. It's, it's, it's hard to remember that, when you're in the throes of thinking, you have to do everything yourself. But when you're doing everything yourself, everything you're doing just becomes an object, a performance of some kind. And instead of the ability to turn your entire focus onto the people that God has given you to equip to do the ministry. So it took me forever to learn that. Anyway, the other, and the other side of this, learning to treat people as the ministry instead of as objects in the ministry, uh, was uh, you know, my experience in church business meetings and when people complained or when there were schisms. Because in all human interactions, all of those things are present, not business meetings, but I mean everything else. They're always present. There are always going to be challenges and difficulties and criticisms and conflicts and all that kind of stuff. It just happens. It's, it's part of being human. And and by the way, they're all over in the New Testament. You know, within a generation of the resurrection of Christ, and it's not, it doesn't even take a generation. Within a few years of the resurrection of Christ, there are all kinds of conflicts going on in the New Testament church by the time James is written, which is very shortly after the resurrection, there are all kinds of conflicts going on in the church. The entire book is written about what to do to restore people in the fellowship instead of trying to figure out a way to blame them for the sins that are in the congregation and so on. Um, and so anyway, when, when, when people would stand in the way of ministry, learning to see that those people, you know, those people who are the problem, those people who did the letter-writing campaign or those people who made the complaint and the, you know, whatever, and uh, those people are the reason that the flock, which includes them, needs a shepherd. If, 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 there, if, if there weren't conflict, if there weren't schisms, if there weren't problems that were going to come up, what would be the point of adding a shepherd? Hey, the sheep just tend to themselves. Isn't it wonderful? Well, in a utopian world, it is wonderful. But in a world with wolves and in a world where sheep are dumb, not people. Sheep, I'm talking about sheep. I'm still in the metaphor, not applying it but where people make mistakes, where people do the wrong thing. See, metaphorically, that's a sheep being dumb, but not a person being dumb. It's a person, you know, doing the wrong thing, making a mistake, doing, and so what does the shepherd do? Hey, 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 let's, let's come back over here. I, I want you in the flock. Let's, let's work together, figure this out, like I'm on your side. I'm the person protecting you from the wolf. I'm here to help. Recognizing that really does change the way we experience and do ministry. And uh, by the way, also, I learned something about conflict in general. Uh, in, in all of the years in ministry and not, you know, in, in my own church, I experienced this right at the beginning, but over a period of time, if you pastor a church long enough, you know, you become everybody's pastor and people start trusting you. And, and in some ways, they trust you. And in other ways, they, uh, they just won't divert uh, problems to you. Uh, I don't know why that is, but they go other directions, and so it becomes easier, you know, over time. In my experience, it did, and that's a good thing and a bad thing, whatever, but I did a lot of interim pastorates after that, and a lot of times, you know, you're doing an interim pastorate, which means filling in after a pastor's left a congregation, and he's going somewhere else, and they need a new pastor, and they haven't found one yet, and so they get somebody to, to fill in in the months or maybe a little more than a year that it takes to find a pastor sometimes, and so I did enough of those. Well, a lot of times a pastor leaves because there was conflict. And so in a lot of those churches, I was going into a conflictual situation. So in all of that exposure to the conflict there, I learned something about those conflicts. And number one, I think the most interesting one and the most surprising to me was that the conflict is practically always, and this is, this is hard for people to believe, but it's just true, and it's the squeaky wheel idea, it's pra- the, the conflict is practically always profoundly less proliferated, b- widespread in the congregation than it feels, almost always. But you don't hear from all the people who just don't care about the conflict. You're not going to hear from them, but they're not going to call you up and say, hey, I heard there's a big conflict in the church, and I just want to let you know it doesn't matter to me. Nobody does that. They just don't pick up the phone at all. So the only people you hear from are the ones who do care. And so it sounds like everybody, you know, must be in on this thing. And I remember I was at one church, a mid-sized church. I mean, large to people who are at a small church, small to people who are part of a mega church. So I'm gonna call it mid-sized. I would call it a large church. Anyway, I was doing an interim at one of those churches, and uh, there, was a, there, was a, there was some conflict and uh, some people trying to stir something up right before they were going to call another pastor. I mean, finally call a permanent pastor to come and fill the role in the congregation. And it felt suffocating to me. I mean, I'm embarrassed to look back and think about how immature I was in my thinking about it at the moment. But it really felt suffocating, like, oh, oh no, you know, what are they gonna do? The church is gonna fall apart because they're gonna have this big vote. And you finally bring a guy in, and then you don't elect him. It's just, you know, it's catastrophic when that happens in a church. And oh my soul, the all these people opposing it. And and I don't remember what the number of people was that finally totally voted on the day that they that they had the vote for the pastor, and there was gonna be a big rally to get people there to vote no, to make their stand and say what had been done wrong and all that stuff. And And the final vote was, I mean, I don't know the number, but let's say it was 490 people who voted. I think it was more than that, but whatever. So 490 to five, there were five people who voted against it. And I, I, in the moment they read the vote, I just went, oh, what on earth was I thinking? I only heard from two people. Why would I have extrapolated two people to be speaking for hundreds when I didn't hear any other voices. It's because that's how we are as people. And so I, I just, I, I like reminding people on occasion that when you feel like there's huge conflict and huge problem, and not just in church, but in life in general, sometimes it's important to remember that it, it always feels more proliferated, uh, more widely spread than it actually is, or maybe even more significant than it actually is. And secondly, and this one is this one is trickier, maybe I can communicate it, maybe I can't, but I'm going to say it anyway. People are independent of each other. So, you know, we, we do this all the time where we feel like, you know, this person has said something negative, that person has said something negative. And so we start saying, well, they're opposed to this and that. And we combine all of their arguments into one great opposition to what we're trying to do. And we act as if there's some huge force against us because of that, and that's a, that's a huge mistake. It's the mistake people make when they say they, they are conspiring, they planned COVID, they started the mask wearing mandate, or uh, they are trying to turn America into a socialist country, or they are, you know, who, yeah, I mean, you can point to an individual who did this or that, and, and on any of those things, you might be able to point to somebody who did this or that of one of those things, or values one of those things but it's not some giant group of people who are all united and conspiring against us. And I, you know, my experience with this was when I was a very young pastor and I deserved every, every bad thing that happened to me as a young pastor, I deserved to be multiplied by 12 because I just didn't know anything. And, and they were very patient with me. Uh, even, even the guys I'm about to describe who were deacons in the church then, they were very patient with me, so I, I don't even criticize them for having done this. They, they needed to do this. Uh, after I'd been there for a couple of years, I told a friend of mine, we were sitting outside of a Sonic, and <laughs> he was sitting with me, and he wasn't a deacon, and I said to him, uh, I think I'm going to be fired tonight. <laughs> the deacons have called a meeting, and I have to go meet with them, and I think they're all going to, I mean, they've all said something they don't like, and so I think the deacons are about to fire me, as if they were all united in doing that. And I went to the meeting and sure enough, they, all, they, were, they were all unhappy with me and they had the meeting to tell me what was wrong with me. And so 13, 12 or 13 deacons sat in a circle around the room and went around one at a time and told me what was wrong with me. And, 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 it, and again, to be fair, they were right. <laughs> Everything they said was true. I, I, and, I, and even in that moment, I wasn't dumb enough to try to argue with any of them. They, they were right. My sermons were too long. I didn't take into consideration this and that when I was preaching, and I didn't organize things the way they were used to. And that, that, all of those things were true and not handled well by me. And so I, and I, again, in that moment, I didn't even argue with them. But, but, but as they went around, I did notice nobody said the same thing you know, what were you thinking? A different person, another thing, another, another thing was wrong. And as they went around, I noticed that the other people were not agreeing with the person that was speaking. It's like every person had something, but they were not the same. And at the end of the meeting, when they had to make a decision, you know, either to support me, get behind me, or fire me, or keep me, but leave, you know, like, I, I'm not going to support you, but it's not your fault, I'm leaving, you know, that kind of thing. They all voted to keep me. They all voted to say no, no you're right. This is uh, they re- they recognized what was going on, which was that they all had different complaints. And hopefully one at a time I started to rectify those things, and make them right myself, but that recognition for me was helpful to stop thinking that everybody who says something is just lockstep with all those other people who say something. It's just it's not true and and that's that has hurt me so many times when I have attributed to one person, something they don't hold at all, because it seems fairly similar in some way to something someone else said. Anyway, that's, that's one of the things I've learned. So those are some of the things just about people and ministry that you know it took me roughly 60 years to figure out, and I wish I had figured out a lot earlier. Uh, another one, and this one is uh, fairly straightforward as well, and it's the next to the last one. The one after this is when not to laugh, step two, <laughs> uh, the second when not to laugh, uh, and that is about this. This one before the when not to laugh part. Before that, about moralism in ministry. I learned something about moralism and ministry. Now I teach ethics. I love talking about ethics. I love the discussion of it. I love. Therefore, talking about morality and talking about the difference between things that are universal and things that are particular, whether it's cultural or whatever. I love all of that. You know, we've talked about Kantian ethics, virtue ethics, and so on. I mean, at this point, my producer leans her head back against the wall and acts like I'm not even speaking because I've started talking about ethics. So, and I'm not saying that happened, but it did. Anyway, the point is that, um, so moralism is different than that. You know, moralism, the idea is, moralism is a good way today to talk about what legalism actually means in scripture. Uh, the idea that what we need is people to measure up to the moral standards that we have, and then the country will be great again, or our culture will be great again, or we'll be stable, or people will be good again, and so on. And moralism obviously has a, a vacuous nature to it in light of the profound message of Christ about our inability to do that. And even Paul in his resurre- and in his new life in Christ uh, acknowledging that I have not attained, but I'm always pressing toward the mark, and so on. Moralism has all kinds of problems built into it. You know, the, the kinds of things that, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a footloose, uh, I mentioned this in class the other day, and it's a weird comparison, but a movie like Footloose attacks or uh, a, a play by Arthur Miller might attack, you know, a crucible, uh, are the same concepts, and they're about moralism. They're not about Christianity and reality. I know that Christianity gets saddled with the whole error, but that's our fault, because we've attached so much of Christianity to this moralistic way of talking about the culture and world around us. So anyway, without all that, it was just jabber. To get to the point of saying, a lot of the you know, angst in, so let me, let me explain it to you by starting with the way we deal with our children psychologically. And I've talked about this before, so I'll I'll keep it brief. The main source of, uh, this is my opinion. I've not done a study on it. This is my observation. After decades, I'm 60 years old. It's my opinion. Live with it. Just kidding. That's how 60 year olds talk though, right? So I'm old enough. You ought to be listening to me, sonny. Uh, The point is, in my experience, the main source of angst, not every conflict or anything like that, but the main source of angst among parents about their children is that they see in their child whatever reminds them of what was wrong with them. And that creates a conflict because they'll see the the tiniest, the, the slightest variation from normal in their teenager and just go off on them. You're not going to that party. You're not You're not hanging out with that kind of person. What are you doing watching that show? And it's because they remember when they started hanging out with somebody like that, they, that's when they, you know, whatever the huge mistake was they made in their life. Or they know how they deceived their parents. I deceived my parent that way. You're not doing that to me, young lady. Get up to your room right now. And, well, yeah, why are you treating me like that? I didn't even do anything yet. You haven't given them time to do it yet because you know it's coming because you did it. You know, that's how parents. So, you know, most parents have the greatest conflict. And I can say this, in my experience, again, I mean, this is hands down, no doubt. Every single time it has been true in my experience that parent, the parent who is most like the child is the one who has the most conflict with the child, whoever it is. Because, again, they see everything wrong with them because they know everything wrong with them. If I know what's wrong with me and you're just like me, (laughs) I'm never getting off your back, you know, because I got a lot wrong with me and I can see it in you and I'm going to make you not be like me. Okay. So what does that tell you when a parent is criticizing that child? It tells you something about the parent. Ooh, had a problem with that, did you? Has that been a struggle for you? Are you still struggling with it? Are you worried about what that's going to mean for them as they get old? You know, it's not hard to figure out. I'm not saying you should say those things, out loud. I'm just saying they're there. So I I suspect this is just, I'm, I'm just being me for a second. 60th birthday privileges here, okay? I suspect after all these decades that a lot of the moralistic focus of preaching is more about the preachers or the speakers or the authors' temptations or their past. I'm not saying they're doing these things. I'm not saying they're guilty of them. I'm saying they're temptations or their past. Then it is about what scripture actually prioritizes. You know, think about it. They read the scriptures and they apply it to the things that are most pertinent to them. Well, I know how I struggle with these things, so I'm gonna preach to you about it all the time. And there is a, and again, I'm I'm not I'm not saying this naively. Again, I've been doing this for a long time, decades, and, and I've been watching it for a long time, and I experienced it in myself. And so I, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, and especially if you're in ministry, that you should pay attention to the things that you're prioritizing, because if, if what you're choosing to harp on, well, I mean, your, nat- your nature is going to be to harp on the things that seem most naturally tempting to you. The things that seem to you to be indications in your congregation that they're about to fall off the cliff that they don't recognize because you do, because you're about to fall off the same cliff, or you already fell off of it and you're glad you got back, or maybe you're still on the other side of the cliff, even though they don't know about it. Either way, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't preach about those things, it doesn't mean we shouldn't teach about those things, it doesn't mean we shouldn't learn the difference between right and wrong and so on, like that. But the prioritizing, I mean, seriously, I remember a particular pastor, Jack Hiles, I've mentioned him before, uh, and, and, and his rules about women. I mean, how many rules about women? And some of these were tongue-in-cheek, so I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, really coming to bash today uh, Jack Hiles or his ministry, even though I disagree firmly with uh, you know what was going on there. But anyway, uh, one of the things he had, and he joked about this in a sermon one time, I remember him preaching at some conference I was at because he was preaching, and uh, he said, you know, I have a, I have a rule. <coughs> he always did this thing, you know. I have a rule that uh, I don't uh, hug women who are under 60 years old. So it's been my rule that I just don't I, don't, I don't embrace women who are under 60 years old because I don't want to be tempted, you know. And he said, you know, the, the only thing is, the older I'm getting, the better those 60-year-old women are starting to look. Now, <laughs> so, look, <laughs> that, I mean, you talk about legalism and moralism. That's what, you know, that world. In his particular world, especially, was built around. There were a lot of people who followed him who didn't follow all those, you know, men and women walk on different sidewalk kind of rules. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing that whole movement, but I mean, that was just, you know, silly. And he was being silly about it, but I guarantee it was his rule. And looking back on that, I'm just stunned by how often and how severely we painted over the objectification of women with a layer of rules about how to avoid them. You see what I'm saying? There was, in other words, in us, in men, this natural tendency toward objectifying women, which was a problem with us, not with them. And instead, we turned that to an outward message of preaching about those temptresses, you know, those women out there who were so dangerous, and you better be careful about them, and telling everybody else how they better avoid them and not hug them. Don't hug anybody under 60. And again, at 60, I'm like, oh, I, don't know. I don't know if that changes anything. Anyway, the point is that I'm saying to you, I learned over a long time that moralism, not, and I'm not even focused on the fact that we externalize or intend on to others a lot of the things that are internal to us. I mentioned that. I mean, we talked about that. That's not the point. The point is just to say, if, if a ministry is focused on all the things you shouldn't do, and I'll put it in Paul's terms in Colossians, touch not, taste not, handle not, something's wrong. You know, that's, that's not healthy. And it's not, it's not biblical. It's not New Testament discipleship and it doesn't grasp the difference between what we were before we knew Christ, you know, failing to do those things even in our attempts, and what we are after we meet Christ, understanding that there's something more important for us to do. Okay, so that about moralism and ministry. Okay, finally, last thing. Last thing, it, 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 so this will take just a few minutes, but hang with me. This is when not to laugh. So the second thing I learned, this is the second way that I learned not to laugh. And I love to laugh. I love humor. I love sarcasm. I love all of that stuff. And I'm in it all the time. And but therefore, it's not been hard for me to put my foot in a gopher hole and realize that I broke my ankle laughing at the wrong thing. Right. So I talked about that in the previous episode. We talked about you know, me making the mistake of laughing because a person had lost their pet. And I was relieved that it wasn't a human being that they had lost. So, but now I, I there, there was another lesson that I learned. And again, it's a lesson I've learned and I've not learned. I've learned it and it's, you know, it's something I have to remind myself to do all the time. And I fail it. I fail at this a, a lot. And I'm really, I really don't want to. I mean, it hurts me when I fail at this. So here, so in order to understand this, you have to get how humor works. And I've, I've studied this for a long time. I've read the Freud work on wit and all that stuff. And uh, I, this is my opinion about how humor works. I know people say you can't make a formula of it. That's true. But that, I think that has more to do with the particular instances of humor than just understanding the basics of it. I think these are the basics of it. When you have a predictable setting With an unpredictable disruption, then you have something that creates, you know, humor. It's a joke. It it turns into something funny. Uh, And in in, in particular, that disruption comes in the form of something that is forbidden or unlikely enough, and, and it would be unlikely because it's forbidden, but those seem to be like two different categories of humor in my way of understanding it or the things that I've experienced. So forbidden or unlikely, but it's forbidden or unlikely enough to be absurd. Like, that's ridiculous. You know, who then that point is what suddenly jumps at us as something that's funny. So what, you know, what kinds of things would serve as such a surprise? I'm bringing this up because of how long it took me to learn one of the ways I needed to stop laughing, that I needed to stop participating in certain kinds of humor. And so to explain it, uh, we're, we're answering, well, what makes something funny? Something unpredictable? And, and what kind of thing creates that kind of surprise? Well, one is just cleverness, you know, a clever substitution or a twist uh, in, uh, for instance, wordplay. So every time you've heard a stand-up comedian say, take my wife, please, that's wordplay. And you don't expect it. I mean, you do now. But even though you expect it now, it's still kind of funny. Uh, because, you know, what, you, what, what you're saying is, I, here's an example. My wife is an example of this. And so she does blah, blah, blah. That's what you expect to be said. But instead it's, so take my wife, please. As if, oh, no, unload me. So you get the deal. I'm dad-splaining, man-splaining, and dad-splaining, and I'm 60. So I'm 60-splaining, too. The point is, that makes it funny. And in this case, it's just the cleverness of the word play. Uh, others that you hear all the time are things like, uh, I just flew in from Charleston, and boy, are my arms tired. You see what I'm saying? So you've, you've changed the end of the, the statement so much that the surprise is supposed to generate humor, and originally it did, even though, again, those are old school, but I'm not trying to tell jokes today I'm trying to understand humor. Plot twists do the same thing. I read a joke the other day. I do not know the source of this joke, which I wish I could tell you. Uh, old couple are talking to each other at a state fair the husband says oh they're doing helicopter rides for fifty dollars and his wife says oh, fifty dollars is fifty dollars huh? you know we, we can't do that it's just too much money oh come on it's just fifty dollars fifty dollars is fifty dollars he asks over and over throughout the year he's asking before the next fair they get to the fair she's still saying fifty dollars is fifty dollars they walk right by the helicopter. The, the guy that's flying the helicopters can see, they, you know, the husband wants to do it. So he walks up to the couple and says, hey, it's only $50 to ride. And the wife says to him, $50 $50 is $50. $50. And, the, and, and the helicopter pilot says, look, here's what I'll do. I'll give you a deal. I'll let you ride for free. I'll let you ride for free if you can keep from saying a single word while we take the flight. And so they agree it's free. Okay, we'll do it. So they get in the helicopter, and the and the pilot does everything. I mean, you know, flying upside down, and you know, I'm not saying you can do that. I don't know what you can do in a helicopter, but you know, doing every weird acrobatic thing you can imagine in a helicopter to get them to say a word so that he can get his fifty bucks. But they they're completely silent the entire flight. They land, and the pilot, you know, just says to the husband through his microphone. You know, the pilot says to the husband, "I I cannot believe." you stayed silent you don't have to pay it's it's free and the husband says you know it was tough and I thought I was going to say something when my wife fell out Uh, so okay so you get the joke Uh, the point is it's so absurd I mean you know (laughs) for 50 bucks really but he said and the helicopter pilot says it's only 50 bucks and he says well 50 bucks is 50 bucks that's the rest of the story so you get the idea the, the, the absurdity of it is what makes it funny, so it's a sort of a surprise ending. It's the fact that you wouldn't expect it. Normally, a person's not going to say that, and so uh, you get the idea. The, the, the difference... Now, there, is, there, there, there are plenty of surprises that are not humorous, you might be thinking, and that, that's true. Let me, let me throw in real quickly in defense of my position on humor... The difference between that, you know, which in that case in the story is a relief of the husband's oppression, you know, know, at the hands of his wife who wants to save 50 bucks, or the tension that's there because they want to do different things, or of sort of mocking marriage in general, a wife won't let her husband spend money the way he wants or whatever, Uh, that difference, you know, that provides a release of tension, a release of this sense of anxiety that was present in the story and so, it, you know, it, it relieves itself in something that's humorous, partially because it is absurd. This, uh, the, you know, is in contrast to what, for instance, happens, it's just as surprising at the end of Sixth Sense, the movie, you know, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, uh, which I loved. I loved that movie, by the way. Fantastic. But, but that surprise, that absurdity in some ways, because, I mean, it's just a movie, but it's a willing suspension of disbelief kind of idea. That surprise comes with gravity, with, uh, you know, it, with an emotion that tends toward grief instead of an emotion that tends toward relief, which by the way, uh, is why those things that are most emotional for us in a context like that, like the sixth sense, are most emotional for the same reason as humorous things are humorous to us. And, and by the way, I remember hearing a study, and this was just on the radio, a decade, two decades ago, probably that the physiology involved in crying and laughing are identical. That when you're doing one and the other, you you know, the muscles are the same, the the things that are going on biologically are identical. And you can, you, you know, that's true. If you watch people laugh or cry, when you're going, "I, I, I can't tell whether they're laughing or crying. We say that because you can't tell whether they're laughing or crying unless you know the context of what's going on. So that, so all of that said, just to say humor works in that, in that room of surprise. Well, one of the ways, and we're getting right to the point now, one of the ways to generate surprise is to violate a norm, you know, to break a rule. And so scatological humor, bathroom humor, you know, works because bathroom refuse is not normally acceptable dinner talk. So, you know, we've all heard four-year-olds do it at the dinner table. They're throwing out the word their uncle gave them to say so that they could surprise or shock the family. And it's funny to the four-year-old and to the adults who are also four years old because it violates the norm. You know, no, you know people don't do that. And so the kid's going to keep doing it because it got a reward of humor. I'm not, I'm not condemning this. I don't care. It's just a kid. They're doing what they do. But, you know, not my favorite form of humor, obviously, because it's cheap humor. Because all you're doing is just saying, oh, I'm going to break the rule. And people will be so surprised, they'll have to choose what they're going to do. They can get super angry or they can weep over it. But most likely, they're just going to laugh, you know, and and move on because it's not a very serious setting. Uh, Sexual humor is the same way, you know, telling jokes that are just filled with ribaldry of some kind uh, because with most people, we don't want to talk about sex with our parents or with other people in the room who are not the people that we're intimate with. It's just not, you know, we are not super comfortable with it. And I'm not saying everybody isn't, but I mean, most people are not. That's why Betty White's gag was so funny for the last 30 years of her life. I'm Whether you think it was funny or not, everybody else thought it was funny and she would, and it was because here's this super polite older lady you know telling these really I mean just profane jokes about sexuality It was like that that doesn't seem should she be saying that and it but it you know it catches you so off guard you almost can't help but laugh I helped but anyway <laughs> sometimes I laughed I, I'm ashamed to admit but I did but, uh, but, but, so that's violations of norms that generate humor, and one of the ways to violate norms is to be abusive towards others because the norm is to be polite. The norm is to be respectful and kind, and so it's funny when people blurt out with some rude comment about someone else, and we even laugh about it when our children do it innocently. Wow, well, she's sure ugly. You know, that's not, it's like, oh, that's terrible. But when you tell your friends about it, I guarantee you're going to tell them in a sense of humor. It's just, to say, you won't believe what little Johnny said. And then everybody's going to laugh about it at the end because humiliating others is outside the norm. And it surprises us that somebody would do that. Don Rickles made his living on it. And I, I honestly, I thought Don Rickles was funny. Yeah, that's how old I am. Again, celebrating sixty years. So uh, this is, you know, this is the one that's so easy to do because you can criticize anybody, anywhere, anytime. Everybody's got something wrong with them, and if you're willing to say it, you can generate a laugh. You can get somebody to laugh at you, and yet you can do real damage without even meaning to. You know, we we what we what we want. I think what most of us want, and this is the way I was forever is to be so close to someone for them to trust us so much that we can do a little jab like that and they know we love them. And people would say that, oh, I can tell how much he loves me because he teases me all the time, you know? And as I look back on it, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be the person who's only known for loving somebody because I tease them so much, but I did that. And so when I was a young minister for this is when I first started learning this and I, and I've tried to learn it better over the years, but I really learned it as a professor at Criswell with students who really were vulnerable. You know, they were they were insecure and vulnerable and when I realized that, I changed everything about what I was trying to say in the classroom to avoid anything that put someone at risk like that. And I've I've not been perfect at it or even close. But I have learned it's important. And in in making the effort, I encourage you to recognize this as well. When I was a young minister, this came across to me because I uh, had a good friend who was bald and uh, significantly balding. He had, still had hair on the side of his head. And, uh, and, and honestly, I didn't think he cared at all. Uh, I, didn't, I mean, he didn't seem to care at all. He was perfectly confident, really strong guy and a good friend. And he joked about it himself, which I realize now people joke about things on themselves sometimes so that other people won't. And, and I don't think that's what he was doing, actually. I still don't think he cared or cares now. But it wasn't that. So I so I said something from the pulpit about it, you know, somebody being bald, in the, and I pointed out who it was, and it was my good friend, and I just thought it was funny, and the congregation laughed, and everybody thought it was funny except his father-in-law, who, whew, uh, gave me an earful and uh, more after church, and uh, I, and I, I was so dumbfounded. I didn't even. I, I it wasn't like a fight. I didn't have a conflict with the guy. I was just so dumbfounded. I was just shocked. It's like I, I, I'm, I'm positive he didn't care and that it was just funny. And, but it took me a drive home and a week of processing that interaction to realize that I had chosen to generate laughter at the expense of someone else, not me. I wasn't making fun of me. I was making fun of someone else. And whether they even accepted it or not didn't change the fact that I was prioritizing the response of the crowd over the value of that person. And I'm so ashamed that I did that and that I've done that so many times over the decades that I, I, I'm trying so hard never to be a person who does that. And, and certainly that when I do let something like that come out, that I make it right, that I, that I make it right with that person. And so I, so an example of this uh, that, that is broader, that's not about me, and that I and I and I don't actually think it's about the congregation where this happened because I think it's almost universal, in some form or another. But I'll give a specific example. Uh, I was in a church where I had brought a, a guest. I, I, well, actually, I wasn't there. Uh, I had family members who were there. I had a family member uh, who went to a church and uh, brought somebody with them to the church who was homosexual and they were just sitting in the congregation watching a video at the beginning of the service. You know, you play these videos, and it advertises something, or it's devotional, or it brings some emotional weight at the end, or whatever, or introduces a new program at the church, whatever. It was something like that, one of those, and it was produced outside of the church by somebody else, and it was a quality video, but in the video, they did interviews with a variety of people just on the street, man-on-the-street interviews, And one of them was a homosexual, somebody who was uh, a a really out, uh, obvious uh, homosexual in their behavior and their demeanor and their speech. I don't know what it was. I wasn't even there. I didn't see the video. Uh, But my family members who were there uh, came back and said, and and when that video played and they asked this person a question, the homosexual a question, and they responded something about being gay, the congregation laughed. Instead of responding... (laughs) So give me just a second, I'll get there. Instead of responding in the way I think the video intended it, by the way, I think the video intended it to say, look, there are all kinds of people that we ought to be caring about. Uh, There are all kinds of people that we want to reach with the gospel and that we want to welcome into our churches and so on. I'm sure that's what the video was trying to do. I know I haven't even told you what video it is. I don't know what video it was, so I, I shouldn't be defensive of it, but I'm just making the point. I don't really think it was the video's fault. But in the congregation, when that homosexual person spoke on the video and said something about being gay, they broke out laughing. And uh, immediately, the homosexual person who had visited the church with my family members walked out. And as far as I know, I've never been back. I've shared that story in other settings where I'm talking to other ministers and said it's just so important that we learn to be respectful of other people even when we think we can get away with using them as the butt of our joke or using them as a way of getting the congregation to side with us about something. We, we have to do better than that. And, and it took me a long time to learn that every other person, every single one, the people on the far right in our country right now, the people on the far left, in our country right now, the people we agree with and disagree with, the people we think look ridiculous in their clothing, the people who act the same way we do, whatever it is, whoever it is, that we remember that these are people made in the image of God. They're not the butt of our joke. That's not good enough for us, and I want it never to be good enough for me again, and it only took 60 years to figure that out. So maybe it won't take you quite as many. So I'm going to close just exactly like I did last time and say it's not complicated. What I learned after 60 years just amounts to saying that he's already shown us what is good, the Micah passage. He's already told us what he requires to do justice, to love mercy, to walk in humility with God. Or in New Testament terms, fine, the great commandment. Just love the Lord your God with all you are and love other people as much as you already love yourself. And that's it. And, it, and if what we do in ministry, if what we do with our lives as believers doesn't serve those ends directly, and I'll repeat what I said last time, Not indirectly, not, well, I can excuse it because the only way to love some people is tell them how wicked they are. You know, that's what love, that's not what love is. That's not it. People know they're sinners. What they don't know is the good news. We we had a whole episode on that. If what we do in ministry doesn't serve the ends of justice and mercy and humility, loving God and loving our neighbors, if it doesn't serve those ends directly, Then we either ought to admit we're not really doing ministry, we're not really serving people, or preferably stop doing those other things and get back to what matters to God. And again, I say we do the latter.
1: Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.